service this morning, I just keep on going with Daniel tonight, so we're going to work through a bit more, and we're going to read from Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to start from verse 1, and we read there that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come up to the to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, Live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of God. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Thank God for his word to us today. You'd have thought after that first list they could maybe just have shortened it to music. <laughs> I don't know the guy. Whoever wrote that needed it. Well, yeah. Whoever transcribed that could have shortened it a wee bit for me. But anyway, let's just pray together. Let's pray. 
Father, we just want to thank you for your word to us tonight through this episode in the life of these three great servants. Father, we want to thank you for the inspiration of your faithfulness, and we pray that you'll teach us from it something of what you want to be in our lives as well. So, Lord, we pray, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to start again tonight with an illustration that will show you the kind of books that I occasionally dip into. And a while ago, this was a a bestseller in the United States, and it was actually written as a serious factual book. It didn't actually set out to be fun and entertain, what actually for me makes it all the better. But it's called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. And the the format is that, that various worst case scenarios are suggested and then survival hints are given. So just for an example, one chapter is headed, How to Deal with an Angry Bull. The number one rule is, do not antagonize the bull. Now let me be very clear, my view is that anybody who would even think of antagonizing an angry bull does not need a book on survival. They need to be locked up for their own safety. And another chapter that's perhaps not obviously immediately relevant to life here in Hamilton, though who knows what the future holds, one day you might say, that piece of evidence that saved my life I first heard in Hamilton Baptist Church on the 19th of February 2017. But this chapter is headed, What to do when you are confronted by an angry mountain lion? And four options are given. A, run. B, play dead. C, make yourself look bigger by opening your coat. D, sing a happy song to the mountain lion. Which one would you choose? I'll tell you, I think for me, I would go for the singing. Because I know at least I could inflict some pain before death. Okay, a variation on this, by the way, is is what would you do if you have a small child with you when you face the mountain lion? And here it is, A, pick up the child, B, shield the child with your body, C, shield your body with the child, or D, run, with the idea being that you maybe can't outrun a mountain lion, but you should be able to outrun a small child. Now, the whole underlying principle behind this book is that you just don't know what life might hold for you. So you need to be prepared for the worst-case scenario. Well, here we have set before us in Daniel a worst-case scenario that's really just about as bad as it can get, and one which I hope you'll come to see is much more relevant to us than perhaps at first glance it might seem. Now, it involves Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know where Daniel is at this particular time. Some people have speculated, but the Bible doesn't actually say, so we don't know. Simple as that. But this involves, first, I believe, facing the challenge. Facing the challenge. The challenge presented to them by our old friend, Nebuchadnezzar. 
If you remember at the end of of chapter 2, after he'd had his dream interpreted for him by Daniel, well, you might have thought then that he'd come to the Lord, that he'd come to faith, he'd been converted, that he'd bowed the knee to the Lord in his life. Verse 46 and 47 of chapter 2, certainly at first glance, seemed to point in that direction. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of God and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. You know, a fairly common saying that we hear is that the devil is in the detail. And that's certainly the case here. For if you really look at what Nebuchadnezzar actually says here, well, he's not saying that the Lord is the one true God. No, what he's actually saying is that the Lord is the greatest among the gods. He's the best of, your, of the bunch. You know, surely your God is the God of gods. That's how then, in that moment, in the excitement and the exhilaration of that moment, of the Lord miraculously providing the interpretation of his dream, that's how then Nebuchadnezzar sees the Lord. But you see, time passes by. And now Nebuchadnezzar, by his actions here, well, if you want to use the terms of the parable of the sword in Mark 4, he shows here that the seed in his life actually fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow but when the sun came up the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root that is that while what God did and what God said might have fired up his emotions and might have appealed to his intellect yet it hadn't really touched Nebuchadnezzar's spirit it hadn't led him to surrender his will to the Lord. And that's proven here by his selective memory regarding this dream and by the actions that this then leads him to take. For you see, as time passes by, as, as his memory fades, then the only thing that Nebuchadnezzar really remembered out of the interpretation of that dream are the details that related to him and to his kingdom. Look at what it says in verse 3. There's no mention made by Nebuchadnezzar of God, of the coming judgment of God, of the coming kingdom of God. No, the only thing that Nebuchadnezzar seems to remember and hold on to out of that dream is that this statue had a head of gold, symbolizing him as the head of his empire. And that its weakness lay in its feet, which were an unstable mixture of of iron and clay, which he knew symbolized, at least for him, the peoples of the many nations that he'd conquered, that he'd brought back to Babylon to serve him. You know, we sometimes uh, talk about the problems of a multicultural society today as if it's something new, it's like a problem of our advanced, sophisticated world. Nebuchadnezzar was wrestling with exactly the same problems thousands of years ago in Babylon. That is the the people of these various races and nations and cultures that he brought back into his empire. They just weren't uniting. They weren't gelling together. And that left his empire for all its 
outward appearance of might and of power, that left it fragile and insecure. So Nebuchadnezzar then had a brainwave. He had to do something to unite his people. He had to give them something that they would have together in common, something that would bind them together as a people. Now, in countries like ours and in the United States, that you know, there's a lot going on, talk about you know, British values, American values, vows of allegiance, certainly there's that in the States, that, that are given, that are there to try to bring people to a point of commitment to their new nation. Nebuchadnezzar, though, he lived in a different day. And so what he decided to do was he decided to form a new common religion. This was how he decided he was going to unite his diverse society. And they would all be required, every man, woman, and child, to worship, to bow down to the same God. And so obviously, with this image of himself as the the head of gold in, in his mind, this man certainly is an egomaniac, Nebuchadnezzar, as a statue of gold, 90 feet high, set up on the outskirts of Babylon. Now imagine, if this thing actually was made of solid gold, it would be of unbelievable value. Even if it was just gold-plated, it would be incredibly valuable. And certainly no matter what it was, it was designed to impress as was everything else involved in in the dedication service for this new God. The music, for instance, was to be provided by the praise band to end praise bands. This was the Philharmonic Orchestra of their time. Just about every musical instrument then in use was to be included, even down to the pipes. I don't know if there's a piper there, but anyway. And all the great and good of the, the empire... They're all gathered in, everybody of importance, to celebrate this great ceremony. Satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You see, this is one of the most impressive gatherings of leaders that up to that point in world history had ever been gathered together in one place at the one time. So everything then, you see, is geared up to motivate these people to worship this new God, to almost overwhelm their senses, to really impress them to the point that they almost can do nothing else but bow down and worship. But if all this isn't enough... Nebuchadnezzar adds one other little element of incentive. That anyone who does not bow down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now I want to say that again, as with much of the detail in Daniel, there is historical evidence from outside the Bible that punishments of this kind were carried out around this time. And there's no question whatsoever from what is known of Nebuchadnezzar outside the Bible, from what we read of him within the Bible, that he would be more than capable of doing this. For he was absolutely merciless, totally brutal in regard to anyone who stood in opposition to him. So all the people then are gathered on this great flat plain of Jura. 
A vast crowd of people. Stretching as far as the eye can see. And it's all dominated by this 90 foot high, magnificent, golden statue. And then the word goes out that as soon as the music starts, everyone is to fall down and worship. And it happens. And everyone immediately falls down before the statue. Except for three men. Three men out of this immense crowd remain on their feet. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the midst of this groveling nation, three men stand tall. Now can you imagine the kind of courage that took? The kind of strength of will, never mind anything else, to remain there on their feet when all around them thousands were falling prostrate to the ground. And there are some who are more than ready to point out to Nebuchadnezzar these three men standing. Verse 8 says, some astrologers, that is the very men who'd been upstaged by Daniel, who'd been unable to interpret the dream that he'd interpreted, they go to Nebuchadnezzar and point out these men to him. That's maybe necessary because they were perhaps out of his field of vision, I don't know, in this huge crowd. And they make known to him Exactly who these men are. And it might interest you to know that the word that in verse 8 is translated denounce, that they denounce them, literally means to eat the pieces of flesh torn from someone's body. You see, they actually really tore them apart. You see, they're so consumed by anger and by jealousy against these men who'd upstaged them and had then been promoted to some of the very highest position in the land on the back of it, they're so angry. And now, it's payback time. Now, you know, at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, all this is maybe a little bit interesting from a historical point of view, but, you know, it's not really relevant to me. It's not really relevant to, to my life, to life today. And if that's the way you're thinking, I want to say to you, how wrong you are. How wrong. For the essence of idolatry, is to worship something or someone other than the true and living God. Well, you know, we maybe don't have any literal 90-foot gold statues in our midst. Would that it was so easy. But the whole emphasis within our society today is about man seeking to be his own God, about man seeking to make God in his own image. That's what our self-absorbed, selfish society is all about. We worship material goods that make us feel good. The people who reach the, the very top of the tree, who for many encapsulate all that they would want to be, we worship them. People talk about things like, you know, pop idols, sporting idols, etc., etc. It used to be just a figure of speech. Sadly, for many, and I think this is becoming more and more the case, it's more than a fun label nowadays. People do attribute a level of devotion to some of these people that can only be seen as worship. A new age teaching. So much of the, the spiritual teaching that quietly and unknown to, me, to most has infiltrated throughout our society 
They actually say it and people believe it. That we're all a part of God. That you are God. And what this has produced is a society with man at the center. Our interests, our desires come first. A society when if somebody wants to do it, somebody wants to believe it, then they should be allowed to. More than that, they should be applauded, no matter what it is, for having the courage to do it. But we've got to accept anything, everything, where anything goes, where every idea is equally true, every lifestyle is equally right and valid. Now you see, in this kind of context, to say that there is such a thing as a God in heaven, And to say that he sets the standards. To say that some things are right and some things are wrong. That some lifestyles are right and others wrong. And then to go on to say that Jesus Christ is the right way. In fact, that he is the only way to God. But that's not popular today. But it's going to get less popular. It's seen labeled as being intolerant. The greatest sin of all, maybe the only sin universally recognized in society. But you know, here I think we do need to be clear that as tolerance today is properly understood, then there is a sense in which real truth is intolerant. Because where there's truth, it must mean that some things are false, that there is right And there is wrong. The problem here, though, I believe, lies in the way that tolerance is defined and that it's been changed so much in, in recent years. It used to mean that I will accept you as a person. I will treat you with dignity, even if I strongly disagree with you, what you believe and the way that you live. Nowadays, though, as we've said, it means that you must agree with almost everything. Or at least you mustn't speak out against it. So true evangelical Christianity then, the truth stands that we take isn't popular today. And all the signs are in current legislation that this is going to get worse. It's going to get worse. That in our tolerant multicultural society, that our kind of position where we say truth is exclusive it won't be tolerated much longer, even if it is. And, and that's the ultimate irony, I think, of today. That almost anything can be tolerated except for righteousness and truth. You see, false gods all around us in this materialistic, man-centered world. And the question is, how are we facing the challenge of that? How are we? And if the challenge comes, you must bow down, you must fit in, you must agree, or else. Then how will we deal with that? Will we just bow down with the majority? Or will we be found standing with the few, no matter what the cost? The next stage in this worst of all worst-case scenarios, finds the three not just standing physically, but actually taking a stand, taking a stand for the Lord. Because what happens is that 
Nebuchadnezzar, having had them pointed out to him, immediately deals with them. Furious, incandescent with rage, he calls them to him and he gives them a choice, an or else choice. Either bow down to my idol or else. Then he finishes finishes with a question that's not really a question. Not really. Verse 15. Then what God will be able to save you from my hand? That's what's called a rhetorical question. It's not looking for information. It's making a statement. Like the question you sometimes hear parents asking their children. Would you like a smack bottom? Now, whoever ever says, yes, that would be lovely, thank you very much. No. Is that really a question? No, it isn't. Of course it isn't. But what this then provokes from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is one of the most wonderful statements of faith in the whole Bible. And it's basically, you do what you have to do, Nebuchadnezzar. But, verse 17 If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Our God is able. Able to save us. Able to protect us. Able to provide for us. Isn't that a wonderful truth? I heard a lovely story recently that that helped me with this to, to kind of grasp it again about an American Baptist pastor who was traveling out to Romania just after the communist regime had fallen on a fact-finding mission. And he asked people, you know, what shall I take with me? And he was told, bring some extra food because you'll be traveling in remote areas, food's in short supply, so bring snacks that will tide you over. Things that won't catch the eye of customs, that won't spoil. So he went to a supermarket He wasn't an expert shopper, so he prayed as he went along and said, Lord, show me what to take. Sweets, first of all. A man after my own heart. Included a a big pack of what I'm told many people in America love, these Reese peanut butter cups. Tins of fruit. And finally, tins of tapioca pudding. And that brings back memories for me. I don't consider that food. I consider that an offensive weapon. (laughs) Anyway, he ended up one night in a flat in Timasura with an American family who'd been sent out by their church as missionaries, but who for the last six months prior to this had been virtually abandoned. And the family were just delighted to be able to speak in English again with some other people. But before he left, this pastor, I think his name's Joe Morgan, he felt he wanted to do something for this family. So he said to them, let's just have Christmas right now, even though it's only October. And I'm going to give you some gifts. He asked the girls, two teenagers, what do you miss most from the States? And they said, candy. Especially, guess what? Reese peanut butter cups. Wow, so he's on a roll now. So with his knapsack open before him, he asked the mother this time, what do you miss? She said, I miss fruit, especially citrus fruit. So with a shout and a flurry, she's able to bring out tins of fruit cocktail, where I always like the cherries, and mandarins and grapefruit. 
Next, he goes to the father. Now, he knows he's really pushing the boat out here, so he, I've got to be honest, he slightly loads the question. What's your favorite dessert? The reply, well, my favorite isn't something that many people actually like. It's tapioca pudding. Now, if I didn't think that story was miraculous before, I believe it now. The only man in the world whose favorite dessert is tapioca pudding. Well, Joel, knapsack, Joel sorry, Morgan emptied his knapsack out and everyone started weeping and singing and praising God. You see, that family knew in that moment that though their church might have forgotten them, that they had not been forgotten by God. And Philippians 4.19, in that moment, came alive for them. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Yes, our God is able. Able to save. Able to provide our every need. Able to liberate from addiction able to forgive sin, able to break the hardest heart, able to restore the greatest rebel and prodigal, able to heal and guide and equip. Our God is able. That was the stand of faith these men took before Nebuchadnezzar. For God had proved himself to them in the past. As God has proved himself to his people again and again, and many of us could add our amen to that, that our God is able. There's just one last little piece of the jigsaw here, though, and I'm going to call it paying the price. The price, that is, that these men were willing to pay for their stand of faith. For think about it. From what we know of these men, as well as faithful men, they were sensible men. From the moment they'd heard of Nebuchadnezzar's plan, they must have prayed that it would never happen. Prayed that Nebuchadnezzar would never build this statue. But he did. Prayed that he would then repent. But he didn't. Prayed that Jews would be excluded from this command. But they weren't. Prayed that, that their disobedience then wouldn't be noticed. But it was. And so now they, they stand before the king and make their statement of faith. The God who is able, the God we serve, is able to save us from it. And he will rescue you from, rescue us from your hands, O king. But then they go on to make one of the most amazing declarations of devotion that you find anywhere in the whole Bible. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Even if he does not. And you see, these men knew what they were saying here because they'd known their share of hard times in their life. Captured and exiled as young men, taken to live and die in a foreign land. Well, they'd been protected there. They'd been blessed. They'd prospered. But 
while they were still young, still they had learned that living for God does not mean that you won't end up in Babylon. And that living the life of faith in Babylon, that is in a sinful, hostile world, that this can be a tough, demanding business that asks everything of you. So they'd learn then that you can't presume upon God. That you can't second-guess God. That you can never know what living for His glory might bring you and might cost you. But they were determined to put God first in their life. They were determined to live for His glory, no matter what. They'd made that commitment. And not even the threats of the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, could shift them from it. But what about us? For you see, we too, we know that our God is able. We know it. We know what He's able to do. We know that He saves. We know He's able to heal. He's able to restore. We know He's able to do miracles of deliverance. We know He can do it. And on and on. But we also know that life doesn't always work out like that. We know that we live in a sinful world and so we suffer with all of humanity because of the repercussions of that. And we also know that we and others in our life aren't always open to God in the way that we should be and so know His blessing. We don't experience the blessing of God sometimes because of that in the way we should. Of course, we know that ultimately God is at work in every situation, and we know that if we turn to Him and are open to Him, that He is able to bring glory to His name to make us more like Jesus, no matter what situation we face. In the here and now, though, of life, when life is tough, when life's hard, when God doesn't seem to hear us, be answering our prayers, or at least not, in the way that we want, in that positive way. Are we then, with these men here, able to say, God is able, but even if he does not, I will serve him, I will glorify him, I will live for his glory. You see, this is the real test of the worst, worst case scenario. And do you know what that test tells you? I'll tell you what it tells you. If you're able to glorify the Lord in your pain and in your heartbreak, if you're able to hold on to Him, yes, even with tears in your eyes, if you're able to get to that place where you fight through doubt and despair to get there, and you're ready to live for God, then that tells you that God really is on the throne of your life. That he really is your Lord, your number one. If your devotion, though, if your worship depends on your happiness, depends on life going your way, then I believe that tells you that you've got an idol problem in your heart. That self in your life needs to be put back in its place. You know, all the heroes of faith in Scripture passed this test. 
They all passed it. Job and his sufferings, Job 13, 15, said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Esther, entrusted with the care of God's people, going in to a hostile king to plead on their behalf. Esther 4, 16. I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. They passed the test of the worst of the worst case scenarios. If we have to face the same in our lives, then by God's grace I pray that we might pass it too. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the examples you give us in your word of what it really means to live life for you in a fallen world. Lord, your word doesn't hide the truth from us. It doesn't tell us that it's all going to be easy. It's going to be a a life of wonderful blessing every moment. No, it tells us the reality, that it's hard sometimes to live for you, that it costs, that it demands everything of us. But Father, you are worth it. You have given us all things, and we just come and bring back our love and devotion and declare again tonight that you are our Lord and King. Lord, be with us. Bless us as we continue to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.